Welcome to another episode of Search News You Can Use with me, Dr. Marie Haynes. We've had some interesting drama in the SEO community this week, so I'm going to talk a little bit today about Rand Fishkin's latest blog post about zero-click searches and how it triggered Google strongly enough for them to write an article in response. Uh, but most SEOs are not happy with this response. So we're going to talk a little bit about that in a bit. Uh, I have to tell you, I am not feeling great today. Um, we got some duck eggs from a local farmer, and I'm pretty sure that I got salmonella poisoning from them last night. I'm going to spare you the details, but just know that it really, really was not pleasant, and it still isn't. <laughs> I'm really not feeling well. But there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on, and I wanted to get this podcast out. So I'm going to record podcast and then I'm probably going to take the afternoon off to recover and drink a lot of fluids. <laughs> I'm also going to talk this episode about the most recent fluctuations in the algorithm, little mini algorithm updates that continue to happen. I'm going to get on my high horse again about link building and share with you why I feel a lot of people are wasting a lot of time and money on link building efforts that probably for the most part are worthless. This is episode number 176 of Search News You Can Use. You can find the online version of this at mariehaines.com slash newsletter. The free version of our newsletter contains the most important Google announcements to get you caught up to date. And the paid version is $18 a month. It has loads more information that we've curated from Twitter and from other sources as my team and I constantly try to learn about SEO and share with that, uh, share what we find with you. We've got 10 of us, soon to be 12 in a couple of weeks. We've got two new hires starting. And we're constantly scouring the web. Every time we learn something new that could help our clients improve, we share that with our premium subscribers of search news you can use. Uh, I share some of this stuff in podcast, uh, but we always try to keep some good nuggets for those of you who pay for newsletters. So thank you if you are a subscriber to our newsletter. All right, let's talk about algorithm updates. And once again, we've had some really significant movement. I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but we've stopped doing a thorough analysis of everything that looks like a significant Google update these days, because otherwise we'd be doing an analysis a couple of times a week some of these weeks. There were two dates recently that stood out where we had a lot of clients with obvious changes in their traffic trajectories that really can't be explained by seasonality or current world events. The first of these is March 13th. I talked about this a little bit last week. I, I think there's a good chance that the fluctuations that we're seeing on this date related to Google's testing of featured snippets. We reported on February 19th that there was a massive reduction in the number of featured snippets that Google was showing. And then many of these featured snippets returned around March 13th. Uh, so we haven't looked into great detail as to whether this is the explanation for many of the ranking changes that we're seeing across our clients. But I think that that's probably what's most likely, that it's connected to uh, Google changing the number of featured snippets that they're, they're displaying. But then there was another update or something on March 19th or 20th, which I actually think was quite significant. Barry Schwartz has an article on Search Engine Roundtable about this change, and he mentions that he's also seen a lot of complaints of indexing issues once again. 
I haven't seen anybody else talking about indexing issues. I don't think it's a problem for any of our current clients that I'm aware of, uh, but I thought it was worthwhile to note it in case some of you are struggling. If you're having recent indexing issues, I'd love for you to let me know on Twitter, Marie underscore Haynes, H-A-Y-N-E-S. And uh, if you can let me know if you're having trouble getting content indexed just since, uh, you know, maybe the last week or so, I would love to know that because I think that would help us understand maybe a little bit more what uh, Google's doing. When Barry tweeted about another update potentially happening, this was March 20th, maybe 19th, uh, when he saw the the chatter in what Barry does is he monitors uh, forums for search engine news. And uh, he noticed a bunch of chatter about people saying there were changes in their traffic, in their rankings around March 19th or 20th. And I retweeted Barry saying, here we go again, (laughs) because we've just had so much fluctuation over the last few months. And then John Mueller liked my tweet, which means absolutely nothing really. Um, probably because John replied a little while after that saying he wasn't aware of anything new launching in search. It was interesting to see though, that an SEO named Andy Beard followed up to this tweet thread asking John, I'm going to quote here, is there a difference between something launching and a parameter being changed? And here's John's response. He said, I think your thought falls into the, we make changes all the time area. Sometimes small changes can have a big effect. True. And I'm sure, and I hope we launched a bunch of changes this week, but I'm not aware of anything big enough that would cause people to see strong fluctuations. That's interesting, right? I was watching an old Google video this week where uh, Google engineer Paul Hart was talking about how search works. And he said that guaranteed pretty much every single time you do a Google search, you're in some kind of a test on Google's side. They're constantly making changes to the algorithm. And some of those are big and some of those are small. And I think what we were seeing on March 19th and 20th is one of these small changes that they've made. But it's also possible that what we're seeing with algorithm updates of note happening with increased frequency could be related to Google's knowledge graph. I watched a great live stream yesterday where Jason Barnard was interviewing Bill Slosky, talking about entities and semantic search. Now, I don't claim to be an expert on semantic search, but I'll tell you, I'm learning a lot. And as I learn things, I'm going to share that with you. I mentioned in last week's podcast that Jason's company, Calicube, keeps track of significant changes to Google's knowledge graph. And he's seeing regular updates over the last few months to the knowledge graph like we haven't seen before. Now, the dates of those updates to the knowledge graph, they don't completely line up with the changes that we're seeing in Google rankings. So I can't say 100% for sure the knowledge graph changes are responsible for all the crazy fluctuation we've been seeing. But it really does make sense to me. I watched another video this week talking about the knowledge graph. It was a Google engineer in 2011 uh, explaining something called Google Square, which was basically spreadsheets of entity information. And it was manually curated. Like there was a list of hundreds of different types of cheeses. I wonder if that's why John Mueller is obsessed with cheese. Who knows? Uh, Different types of cheeses along with attributes for each one, like the hardness of the cheese or the country of origin and so on. 
And he, so these are all entity information about, you know, the cheeses are an entity. And then, uh, the facts about those cheeses are, are other, uh, information, they're entity facts about those cheeses. So he said in that time, this is in the 2011 video, there were 20 million entities in the knowledge graph in Google's knowledge graph. And he said, you know, what would be really cool is if one day we had facts on a billion entities in the knowledge graph. Well, that was 10 years ago. And as of May, 2020, Wikipedia reports that not only are there, uh, there's 5 billion entities now in the knowledge graph and 500 billion facts on those entities. Google's really, really come a long way. And every time Google gets more information in the knowledge graph, they just get a little bit smarter. The algorithms know more about things and they have more ways to determine who's giving expert advice on a topic. And when you combine that with Google's increasing ability to understand language, whether they're using BERT or Smith or whatever the latest advances are in understanding language, search results get more relevant. If you've lost rankings over the last few months, you really do need to look at which sites are outranking you. And if you can figure out why searchers are finding those pages more useful, you can start to improve your own page to better meet the needs of searchers and hopefully regain some of those rankings that you lost. So let's switch gears here and talk about Rand Fishkin's article that caused a big enough stir that Google published a blog post to refute it this week. Although most SEOs say they didn't do a very good job in their argument. Rand's article is titled in 2020, two thirds of Google searches ended without a click. He used clickstream data from a company called similar web to determine how often users do a search on Google that doesn't result in a click to a website. Let's talk about what a zero click search is. There's a few different kinds. This morning, before my girls got dressed to go to school, I typed into my phone weather and Google told me it's currently seven degrees Celsius and there's going to be a high of 13 this afternoon. So I didn't have to click through to a weather website. It was just there. And it was there on my Google search results. I didn't have to go to weather.com. Another example that Rand gives is if you do a search for animal sounds, you can ask Google what a cow sounds like and Google will play a sound without me having to leave the Google results and land on a website. That's a zero click search. Another example could be if somebody searches for your business and instead of clicking through to your website, they click on a button to phone you directly, or even they just get your number from the search results and they call you directly without actually visiting your website. Well, that's a zero click search, but the business actually benefited from that search because their customer found them, which really is their main goal in being listed on Google. Now this isn't in Rand's article, but I think the main issue that SEOs and website owners have with zero click searches is that the search results by showing a little snippet of information can cause users to just stay on Google and not land on the websites that actually produce that information. Let me give you an example. I told you I wasn't feeling very well today and I'm pretty sure it's because I had duck eggs yesterday. We buy eggs from a local farmer and this week they had duck eggs available. So we thought, Hey, we'll give them a try. 
They're actually very yummy. <laughs> when I started getting really sick, though, in the afternoon, I, I knew it had to be the duck eggs that caused it because I've actually been on a really, really strict, bland diet. I'm not going to go into great detail about all my health issues, but some of you know that a couple of years ago, I cut dairy out of my diet and I made a drastic, it, it made a really drastic difference in many of the pain issues that I have. And after doing further research this year, I recently stumbled upon something called histamine intolerance. And I'm currently trying a low histamine diet. The results are absolutely incredible for me. Dairy also, like by cutting out dairy, I cut out a huge source of histamine. So I think that's why it helped me. So it turns out that as many as 3% of the population has issues with a certain enzyme that breaks down the histamine in your body and it can cause lifelong health problems. So if any of you are interested in more of this, please do reach out to me on Twitter. I'm, I think I'm eventually going to create some sort of a Google Doc or maybe a website to share everything I've learned on this because just after a few weeks on a low histamine diet, my pain issues are almost completely gone. And the most amazing thing is that I was taking quadruple dose antihistamines for over a year now for skin issues that make me insanely itchy 24-7. And since starting the low histamine diet, I've been able to wean myself completely off of antihistamines. It's amazing. I feel like a brand new person. So yesterday when I had symptoms of food poisoning, the only new food that I had eaten, because I'm being very strict on what I eat, was duck eggs. So why am I telling you all of this stuff about duck eggs? I, I want to walk you through my zero-click search experience when I was trying to figure out whether it was the duck eggs that made me sick. So I googled uh, sick after eating duck eggs. And the first result that I saw, it didn't really entice me to click, but I saw there was a people also ask carousel. And the first people also ask was, can duck eggs make you ill? So I tapped on that to open up the accordion and I saw a snippet from a story from the BBC. And it was about a man who had died in England after eating salmon, or he got salmonella poisoning after eating duck eggs. So then I did a new search, duck eggs and salmonella. And the first result Google showed me on that search was from a site called seafood.net. It was telling me how to properly cook things so I wouldn't get salmonella. Not really what I wanted, but what captured my attention was right under that was more people also ask. So I opened the people also ask accordion that said, are duck eggs more likely to have salmonella? And this showed me a snippet from a site called irishtimes.com, where I learned that there have been multiple cases of food poisoning in Ireland that were tied to duck eggs. Now, I'll spare you the rest of my journey here uh, that I took on uh, reading the search results and learning more about salmonella and, and what poisoned me. I, I did a lot of research, probably over the period of an hour or so, mostly from the comfort of my toilet. I know you didn't need to know that. <laughs> and what I read mostly was just grabbing information from the people also ask accordions. And then I was reformulating my searches as I learned more information and realized what it was that I was actually searching for. So as a searcher, this was amazing. It was very helpful for me. I learned a lot in the period of time uh, that I had to search and I thought it was a really good experience for me but what about those websites that I learned from? I didn't visit the BBC or the Irish Times or many of the other websites that I read snippets from in the Google search results. I did spend a little bit of time reading through some Reddit posts, but really the vast amount of my time was spent on the Google search results. Is that fair? 
I mean, sites like the BBC and the Irish Times, the reason why they publish this type of information is to make ad revenue from it. Now, as a website owner, you can choose not to allow Google to display content from your website in the form of a snippet. If you change your max snippet length to something short enough, then Google won't display your content in a featured snippet. So you could do it. The problem is though, that you also don't get regular snippets. What we see as uh, sometimes the meta description, sometimes Google rewrites it, you won't see that either. There's no way that I'm aware of to tell Google I want you to display this page in your search results and I want you to display a, a display a snippet in organic searches, but I don't want you to use this information in a featured snippet or a people also ask accordion. The way things stand now, if you want to be found on Google, you pretty much also have to let Google summarize your content for free, even if you don't get any benefit from it. Ironically, just this week, Mark Rofe brought up a, an old tweet where Matt Cutts had asked if any of us had examples of scraper sites that were outranking original content. And Dan Barker uh, tweeted a screenshot where he Googled, what is a scraper site? And the answer was a featured snippet, which was a scraped version from Wikipedia article on scraper sites. And the featured snippet, of course, was outranking Wikipedia. This was back when uh, if you had the featured snippet, you could also get an organic listing as well. So I guess Rand's article hit a nerve with Google because late last night, Danny Sullivan wrote an article called Google search sends more traffic to the open web every year. And it was published on Google's blog. It's interesting that the article doesn't actually link to Rand's study or even mention him at all. It starts off with this week, we saw some discussion about a claim that the majority of searches on Google end without someone clicking off to a website or what some have called zero click searches. As practitioners across the search industry have noticed, this claim relies on flawed methodology that misunderstands how people use search. The article goes on to explain that many things that we might call zero click searches are just people reformulating their query, like I did when I was searching earlier. It also points out that when I do a search for something like weather, Google has a licensing agreement with sites like weather.com, and that allows them to display this type of information right in the search results. They also mention how they can send people directly to businesses without requiring a traditional click, such as someone who just looked up a business phone number and saw it in the search results and then called that business. And, uh, you know, that's a good thing that businesses can do that. The thing is though, this whole blog post is basically Google saying, no Rand, your data is wrong. The number of zero click searches is not 67%, but then they didn't refute that fact with actual data. The post basically says every year we send more and more traffic to websites, but doesn't address the fact that a lot of websites miss out on traffic because people also ask boxes and featured snippets and things like that are stealing their traffic. Somebody asked John Mueller this week whether Google would ever remove backlinks as a ranking factor. This has come up before. A few years back, Matt Cutts talked about this and said that a Google algorithm without links would not be good. And Yandex, a Russian search engine, they attempted this a few years ago as well, and it didn't work well. They actually went back to using links in their algorithm. John's response though to this Twitter, uh, this tweet was very interesting. He said, everything's possible, but we tend not to make pre-announcements. 
While we do use links to discover new content, I suspect a lot of sites think about them much more than is necessary. Now, John's not saying here that links are not a ranking factor. What he said was he suspects a lot of sites think too much about links. So why are we as SEOs obsessed with links? When I first started in SEO, I was helping a friend try to rank a local business website. And one of the things that we thought we'd try was some guest posting. So we reached out to some local blogs and we pitched some ideas for guest posts. And we had a small handful of guest posts published with each of them containing some kind of a link that pointed back to our website. And within a short amount of time after getting these guest posts published, this client was ranking way better for their main keywords. If you've experienced the joy of rankings improving after you've worked hard to build links, then you know how addictive it is. I remember thinking I could rank any site on the web if I could just get enough guest posts. Keep in mind, this was a long time ago, but somewhere along the line, this tactic became less and less effective. And the same thing goes for other types of links that are easy to make. Most of you listening to this know that over the last decade, my team and I have helped hundreds of websites remove manual actions for unnatural links. When I first started doing this, I was amazed at the type of spam that was actually working prior to their site getting a manual action. You know when you get those super spammy emails that say for a hundred bucks, they can, uh, they can get you a thousand social bookmark links and directory links and blog comments or something like that. Well, the reason why those emails are sent out is that that type of link used to be valued in Google's algorithms. They used to work. And then when Penguin came out in 2012, the ultra spammy links stopped counting as recommendations for your website. So most of you today probably aren't spending time trying to find blogs that have a comment section that will allow you to drop a followed link. You know that it is unlikely that Google's going to value that type of link. Because why does Google value links? It's because they're a recommendation. The quality rater guidelines, they mention repeatedly how valuable a recommendation from an expert is from an authoritative source is. When we mention in our newsletter, let's say we mention a new tool that we think our readers might like, and we link to that tool, that's a recommendation from us. That's my company saying, hey, you should check out this tool, it's really good, and we think you might find it helpful. Now, let's say you ran one of these tools, this was your company, and you were trying to get links to your website to improve your ranking, so you can get more customers for your tool. Here's an example. Uh, in this week's newsletter, we talk about a tool that Mike King retweeted uh, or tweeted about that allows you to put in a keyword and the tool will determine the demographics for people who are searching for those keywords. And you can see whether you know more men tend to search or more women or uh, what age groups search as well. And I think this is valuable to a lot of people. So let's say I was the owner of this tool and I was trying to build links to improve my rankings. Something that a lot of SEO agencies do is they try to cultivate relationships with content producers who are desperate for new content. Uh, there's a lot of sites out there that will publish your content and allow you to link back to yourself in this content and they don't charge you any money for it because they're getting content for free. So they're not technically paid links. So a lot of people go, well, you know, this is fine. Google will be fine with this, but really they're links that you made yourself. So say this tool company got a whole bunch of links uh, in this way. 
The reason why they do it is because they're hoping that Google's algorithms will see these links as recommendations from everyone who published the content that they themselves created. And I think for a while this was true. Like Google's algorithms, they want wanted to value recommendations, but often they couldn't tell the difference between uh, ones that you made yourself and true recommendations from people who actually know what they're talking about in a particular industry. So are self-made links recommendations? I don't think any of us truly believe that they are. Yet many of us are still making links like this because for many years, although they weren't exactly recommendations, Google's algorithms treated them as such. Now, anytime I post something on Twitter that argues that Google is ignoring a good number of the links on the web, I'll get a few black hats that laugh at me or outright disagree with me and show me charts of skyrocketing traffic based on their link building. And who knows, I, I bet you there are some black hats who can still build links that trick Google into thinking they're actual recommendations. But as Google gets better and better at understanding language, I think they can tell which links should be counted as recommendations and which don't matter to the search algorithm. I also think that EAT plays a huge role in all this. I haven't seen this in a while, but I used to get emails all the time that said someone was selling a link and they would brag about their toolbar page rank. You know, hey, here's a link from a, a, a page rank seven site and page rank seven links were way more expensive than uh, page rank six uh, links. As far as we know, page rank is still a huge part of Google's algorithms. But that doesn't mean that every single followed link on the web carries value. I think I said this last week, but one thing you can do if you're trying to determine whether your links are being seen as recommendations is actually see if anybody's clicking on them. So, uh, you know, go to your Google Analytics referral traffic and see if you publish guest posts across the web or self-made content that has links pointing back to your site and no one's clicking on these links and engaging with your content, then I really think there's a good chance that Google's algorithms aren't valuing them either. The links that matter are ones that come from authoritative websites in your niche. Let's go back to this tool provider. They could write guest posts and see who's willing to publish those guest posts and get some links that way, but will Google see those as recommendations for their product? But what if some authoritative SEO websites that are talking about doing marketing research recommend their tool as a resource? That's better. It's one thing to have multiple links from no-name blogs that nobody's ever heard of, but if you can get links from sites that have expertise, authoritativeness, and trustworthiness already in the eyes of Google's algorithms, then those are the ones that move the needle these days. Some of the team here at MHC have been working on a referral program where we can connect our clients with companies and individuals that we feel do good PR work uh, and do what we call, instead of link building, we like to call it mention building. A few years ago, Gary Ish mentioned that EAT is primarily based on links as well as mentions from authoritative websites. So if you're interested in this referral program, you can reach out to help at mariehaines.com and my team will put you in touch with one of these companies or, or people who do this. You guys, 
I got through this whole episode without having to pause to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I'm going to count this as a victory and I am never ever eating duck eggs ever again. <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast, we've got more news again that you can find at mariehaines.com newsletter. We've got some new information in this week's episode on mobile first indexing. Again, this is episode number 176. Uh, Google has said at some point that they were going to move all sites to mobile first indexing by the end of March this year, but it looks like now it's going to be delayed a few months. Uh, we've got some really good insights from Darren Shaw in this episode on debunking some uh, common local SEO myths. And there's also best practices for making your videos more likely to be found in search and um, minimizing the risk of getting your domain name stolen, which is no fun <laughs> as well. If you got some value from this podcast, I would love for you to leave a like or a thumbs up or even a comment on whatever platform you're listening to. Um, and you know, you can subscribe as well. If you, I think a lot of our listeners are listening on Spotify. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast and then every week it'll be right there in your Spotify app if you want to uh, catch up each week. And if you want to reach out to speak to my team, you can always do so at help at so I'm off to rest and drink a bunch of fluids now. <laughs> I hope you're having a better day than I am, and I wish you the best of luck with your rankings. <laughs> <laughs>